I'm back, and I would like to know, in honor of Million Dollar Arm, what other TV star would you like to see become a full-fledged movie star? And in case you haven't figured it out, I'm Katie Rich, and I still can't figure out why Idris Elba hasn't happened. And I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Matt Zutri, who I think was on Gossip Girl, but now I adore for being on The Good Wife, who could probably play like a noir detective if they still made movies that would accommodate noir detectives. I'm David Ehrlich. I think it's pronounced Zuckery. He was Logan on the Gilmore Girls before he was anyone Do else. Do not give a shit how it's pronounced. I adore the man, not the I name. I will laugh at your funeral for that. I am going to go with Liam Cunningham, who plays Sir Davos, uh, the Onion Knight on Game of Thrones. It was terrific and makes every one of his scenes. I think they're adding scenes to the show that were not in the book just to give him some things to chew on. And I just learned tonight that he was the priest in the incredible dialogue scene in Steve McQueen's Hunger. So Liam Cunningham, put him, put him in some meaty movies. How could you not pick Sutton Foster from Bunheads? Oh, uh, burn! Uh, Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room episode. The I don't know says. about you, but I'm feeling 22. For Tuesday, May 13th, 2014. So, yeah, David, tell us about this review. So, David, tell us about it. Uh, yes, we have one new review this week. It's a very kind five-star review called Variety by T.J. Dwayne. He says, or she, T.J. could go either way, I guess, but I'm going to go with, I think it's a he, I don't know. Uh, you will not find a wider array of tastes on one podcast. The four critics on this podcast, in parentheses, seem to like one another, even when they bicker uh, about a given superhero movie or small foreign import. And then there's a footnote. I think this is our first review footnote. <laughs> it In brackets is the number one. It says, hint, David will hate the and then something and that's why we love him. Well, that's nice. I haven't heard a film podcast this fun elsewhere, so I keep returning. As long as this troop sticks together, I'll keep my subscription and urge others to do this as well. Thank you, TJ Dwayne. Uh, and thank you for the footnote. I like that this person has the sight to say, well, they seem to be friends <laughs> on the podcast, but in real life, it's very possible based on tone that they hate each other. I invited you guys to my wedding out of spite. That's true. We all survived. And we all went out of spite. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> really elaborate spite game we have going here. mentioned this on the podcast before but i my obsession has recently soared to new heights or lows or whatever but tonight we're going to be talking about video games but really we're going to be talking about uh interactivity between players online uh and i think in a way that sort of transcends 
most video game conversations or, or the format, or at least brings it into interesting new areas. Uh, talking about the video game series Dark Souls, which is uh, out predominantly. Uh, it's on the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox. There was a game a few years ago called Demon Souls, and the same people made a game called Dark Souls, and it sold a lot of copies, uh, even though both it and its predecessor were uh, notoriously some of the most difficult video games ever made. Uh, really maddening stuff for hardcore gamers, these 100-hour plus adventures, uh, but very, very, very satisfying. And I think there's a certain sort of masochistic person like yours truly who really takes a shine to this sort of thing. And now Dark Souls 2 is out and it is another big success. Uh, I'll briefly set up what the game is and we'll get to the point of why I wanted to bring it up in the first place. Uh, It's essentially a... (laughs) You are a person that you can design uh, and you are plunged into the darkest, dankest, most horrible kingdom a fallen, decrepit kingdom you can imagine um, that is just evil and horrible monsters and creatures that are often very ornately and, and beautifully designed and often the most disgusting things I've seen on a screen the side of Slither uh, are trying to kill you around every corner and you are slowly making your way. You're dying hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of times in a trial and error sort of way to get stronger and move further and explore this uh, really beautifully designed game world. Um, there's a the game is very sadistic. It is that's part of its nature. It does not. Uh, it takes a great deal of pleasure in its characters and uh, how difficult it is. There is a death counter of all the deaths worldwide that have happened in the game at the home base of the, sequ- of the sequel. And is I this bought the, the human game. centipede of video games? <laughs> it, it is. Okay. I bought the game about three days after it came out, and I think it was already well over a million deaths that have been recorded. Um, so uh, it's one of those games, and and uh, it is really incredibly addictive uh, if you're into that sort of thing. But anyway, it brings me to why I wanted to talk about it, which is the game's really novel and fascinating uh, implementation of online features. So Dark Souls, part of what makes it so oppressive and difficult uh, and and this really sort of atmosphere-rich game is that you are doing it alone. There is no co-op gameplay where you and a buddy can talk to each other on your headsets and charge into battle. There's none of that. However, uh, when you're playing the game online, which is the default setting, you don't have to do anything to engender that, you see the little ghosts, these like you know, translucent wraiths of other players who are playing the game live around you from time to time. And you get the sense that you are in one of an untold number of parallel universes. And you feel the sort of kindred spirit with the players uh, who are going through this ordeal. And it's very galvanizing, this feeling that you're all going through it together. There are also, every once in a while, uh, blood splatches on the ground. And if you click on them, you will see the final moments in a GIF-like fashion of a player before they were killed in whatever place you happen to be. But you won't see what killed them or how they died, just their movements. So it sort of clues you in as to what you should be looking for and the terror that might be around the next dark castle corner. But at the same time, uh, it, it really just raises the hair on the back of your neck and, and deepens the mystery as to what the fuck. Like you just, the whole game is just you walk around going like, nope, nope, like not, like don't go around that corner. Uh, and then it gets more interesting from there in that you can write messages to other players <laughs> that you can leave on the ground, but you can't 
type them. You have to pick words and phrases that are part of the game's lexicon. So the all the phrases are designed to be as cryptic <laughs> as possible. So there's one whenever you meet like a, a, a computer character you'll find a message and that says liar ahead and like you were always expecting this computer controlled character you come across to kill you or they'll you know you can be helpful they'll say like hidden wall or they'll you'll be on a cliff and it'll say jump for treasure or something <laughs> and you'll just kill yourself and someone will be laughing and you can rate the comments uh, so people will know if they're helpful this, or not this is like an exhibitionist game this is about killing yourself in public to toy with other people <laughs> then, as opposed to achieving whatever goals there are the best part, and again, all of what I've said is about this feeling of camaraderie. I mean, it's even it, it's so much stronger than this feeling of like you know playing Call of Duty and being like, oh, it's like go Leroy Jenkins, World of Warcraft, whatever. We're gonna do this shit together. It's like you feel alone, like you would in any sort of uh, tense situation, but also not alone at the same time. But then the the real masterstroke is how you can actually, if you get a certain item, invade other players' games. <laughs> so you'll be playing along, and as you play and you kill things, you collect money. It's souls. It's a currency in the game. And if you die, you lose all of them. Uh, and so you'll be playing along, and you'll see a message across the bottom of your screen that says a name of a player has invaded your game. And all you know is that somewhere in the game world is another player who is hunting you down. <laughs> so in addition to how difficult everything is, you now have this to deal with. And if you kill someone, you become guilty, and people can find you based on your guilt. It's very complicated, but also not. And you can also summon people in helpful situations to help you beat bosses and whatnot. But I'm really sort of interested in this feeling of camaraderie and solidarity that this game engenders by making it a solitary experience as well. Uh, and I, it, uh, the reason that I brought it up on this predominantly movie-related podcast is because the closest analogy that I had for it was the experience of watching a movie uh, in a theater and having this sort of shared experience that you can't talk about as it's happening. And you just sort of have to – I was watching Godzilla the other day, and we won't spoil our review segment, but – uh, I I was uh, feeling things very strongly, and I it got to the point where I almost wanted the movie to stop so that I could turn to the people sitting on the other side of me and be like, "You guys, like, can we talk about this? Like, am I alone here in, in, in having this experience?" And uh, I thought the the game was such a this Dark Souls game is such a neat analog to that experience, and adds of course this layer of interactivity to it. Uh, and I'm not sure how to open this up to you guys in the form of questions, but uh, it's definitely if you're if you're at all interested in video games and haven't played Dark Souls or Dark Souls Two, both of which are equally great, uh, I would encourage. It's, just, it. it's interesting to me to hear that this game is both popular and able to kind of pull this off because I found in reading about games that most people concentrate on plot or the end goal. They want to accomplish something, or they want to have what you were saying: Call of Duty team up you know, complete an objective. Um, games can be very plot-driven, whereas this one seems to be about exhibition and to be about toying and about searching around this world and just seeing all the crazy, absurd stuff that you can come up with or tease people with or just, like, have this shared experience. Um, it's true. I mean, the games have... the Clearly, if you read the Wikipedia page, you can see just, like, how insanely detailed the backstory is. But you don't really... 
I couldn't tell you what these things are really about. They're about fallen kingdoms that have really gone to ruin, and there are little details in all of the descriptions and all of the items and whatever. You can piece together a narrative if you'd like, but it really is, as you're saying, I think you're right on that it's more about the experience. Are you familiar with the recent quote-unquote social experiment that this site Twitch did yes. with Pokemon. It, yes, something I about have. what you're saying here reminds me of this. So this website Twitch, which is all about um, uh, exhibition video game playing, like you can watch people play StarCraft or something and sit in on these big tournament games. Well, they decided these Australian programmers were able to launch a version of the Game Boy uh, game Pokemon and um, basically thousands of people, I think 80,000 people at a certain point were playing Pokemon together. Like uh, Ash, the main character who's roaming this land and trying to collect Pokemon and trying to beat all the bosses. Everyone was in charge of his movements. So you could, everyone had to press up at the same time if he was actually going to make progress. And what? suddenly you had to get 80,000 people to be um, <laughs> crowdsourcing the <laughs> movements of this character and kind of, uh, you know, aligning with their choices and knowing Sounds that. Sounds exhausting. Oh, it's super exhausting. And, but you could watch it forever because people would be competing for like what they wanted to do. Do they want to press A and open up their bag and check their items and take a potion or are they going to move up, up, left, left, and that sort of thing? It's it was just so insane. And they beat the game. Yeah, they beat it. It they took did it. weeks and weeks, but they beat it, um, uh, which is pretty incredible. It's, what it's, would our human insane. capital be used for? I mean, what could we be doing if people put that much energy into anything else? Well, that's true. <laughs> you could probably... <laughs> not, not knocking video games in general, just that method of playing video games. Well, do you start provoking people? I mean, does a game like Dark Souls or does this experiment with Pokemon... Um, get people to group think together and work together in a game in the game mechanics and then you start gaming different more applicable things I mean that's why everything's being turned into a game recycling is a game or your exercise is a game do, do, these, game, do these other games teach you to live life as a game and that's actually more productive <laughs> I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, the I, the Twitch thing, Katie, to answer your question, I mean, I think it's a fascinating experiment. Um, I I don't know what you know if those people could have cured cancer in that time, or whatever. <laughs> but they, uh, um, you know, I thought it was really I. I I, it's not of my nature to participate in something like that, but I did check it out, and I thought that it was it was pretty interesting. I don't know where and to begin I'm, participating yeah. in something like that. I have no idea. I'm glad they I'm glad they were able to, to beat it. I think that is a a bold step forward for humankind <laughs> um, against Pokemon kind or whatever. But um, we should turn uh, curing cancer into a game, and that's how we. Well, uh, I I think uh, I I swear that I mean. I think the the world is broad enough, and especially the world of cancer, that something to that effect has certainly been done or tried. I mean, I think uh, the gamanization of of everything. But I think um, it's interesting to me how uh, something like Twitch... Uh, which did have a little uh, text box where you could you could type to the other right people, people but can there are 80, talk to each of other. them so like it doesn't do any good you know it's all garbage <laughs> it's all gibberish but um, uh, it's interesting how limiting the form of communication or, or sort of in the form of Twitch making it really impossible to have any sort of lucid communication uh, actually creates a a more sort of unified spirit like at least experientially everyone is experiencing the same thing together even if it's not as clear on an individual basis um and i think that that's really that's really interesting so uh if that it sounds at all 
appealing to you. And they're still you, playing Pokemon, uh, by the way. They're beating. <laughs> they're currently right now, as you listen to this, trying to beat Pokemon Platinum. So you can <laughs> witness that. But uh, Dark Souls uh, might be the more controlled, enjoyable. <laughs> Game. Yeah, if you want the, the movie-going experience in an insanely difficult, incredibly trying, hair-pulling, and ultimately more rewarding than any video game I've ever played in my you know, way too long years of playing video games, uh, check out Dark Souls, Dark Souls 2. I think the second one just has already sold more than 1.2 million copies, and so hopefully there'll be a Dark Souls 3, and Katie will play it. And uh, Lars yeah, von Trier's Dark Souls. Lars von Trier's Dark Souls. <laughs> the end. a perfect night to dress up like hipsters and make fun of our exes uh-uh, uh-uh. it feels like a perfect night for breakfast at midnight to fall in love with strangers uh-uh, uh-uh. yeah we're happy free confused and lonely at the same time I think inspired by Godzilla this week, Dave, David asking us, "Oh my God, was that your was that your Godzilla call?" Sounded like an angry cat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the. Problem. I stepped on Godzilla's tail. <laughs> Godzilla has different uh, vocal cords than I do, and oh, so it, it makes it easier for him or her or it. Uh, to to do this, but I, I do my best. Okay, inspired best. by Godzilla's heinous vocalizations. <laughs> um, David, you you posited to us in an email chain planning this episode to try and pick a summer blockbuster uh, post Jurassic Park that we would deem our favorite. Now, why did you want post Jurassic Park? Is that just too obvious at this point? Is that really the pinnacle of summer blockbuster filmmaking for you? No, I mean I think that uh, Jurassic Park definitely. Uh, kicked off a new era of summer blockbusters, and I think that between that and Godzilla, it make a very complete parent. You know, uh, closed brackets between one another. <laughs> it's uh, over. It's a new era post Godzilla. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just. I think you know, and certainly Jurassic Park's influence will continue to be borne out in, in other films. But Godzilla is really uh, a you know, and this won't. Dip into our review, but it, it is very Everything much a uh, a callback to Jurassic Park. So definitely uh, with with very on the nose callbacks, uh, yes. but we'll get there in time. Uh, Katie, let's jump to you in this mini segment as we as we rush to the finish line. What is your favorite blockbuster post Jurassic Park well, summer I blockbuster? Seen, I, I haven't say. seen Godzilla, so maybe it would be that. I'll have seen it by the time we do this review. Um, I think especially in the wake of all the Star Wars news that is alternately uninteresting and worrisome, I find it necessary to remember how much I love the 2009 Star Trek. Like, how what a joyful I thought you were going to say Phantom Menace. Oh, Phantom Menace, which I fell asleep watching at midnight with you fools. Um, The uh, the 2009 Star Trek was such a joyful experience for me watching it because I had just gone back and watched all the original ones. I had just introduced myself to Star Trek and... I think it's still a really good movie with whatever flaws you want to point out. And I've watched it many times and, you know, can watch 
whatever p- people point out that's a flaw in it and then still love it so much. And I think that's that's a really key component for me in a summer blockbuster like that, especially something that might be a little silly but is really out there to entertain you. If you can continue feeling that deep love for it that you did the first time you saw it, as it, irrational as it might be, I really value that. So I want to I wanna stick up for the 2009 Star Trek because it's really, really good, even if the second one. I, I cried at the end of that movie. I don't know if I cried at the beginning that. of that movie. Like all, I humans. cried when I realized there was like an hour and a oh half my left God, of you that suck. movie. <laughs> I, I really I mean, did not like that movie. I was not going to be able to choose anything that David was going to get on board with. No, so I just, absolutely I just, not. I'm not sure. I'm really wondering. David, you're up. What... What blockbuster? And you can't pick Godzilla either. That's off the table. I'm so. not going to pick Godzilla. Uh, you know, I feel like this is a kind of question where, even though I was the one who posed it, but the, I, I didn't. I didn't really. <laughs> I do. find it reductive, despite no, me no, planning I it. I wasn't going to mock the question. I was just going to say that I don't think I I'm necessarily did my homework uh, to say with you know complete confidence that this this is my pick. Well, sure. uh, but I feel safe. Like, my first thought was The Rock, and I'm going to stick with it, because The Rock has everything. It is Michael Bay's masterpiece, and that, my friends, is saying something. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think it really uh, has, it's remarkable how little that film has aged. Uh, and the, the action is, like, it obviously has a very 90s flair to it, especially the many explosions with Stuntmen leaping out of the way, but uh, slow motion is, is just such a great script and so perfectly cast. And I mean, we've talked. I think you could probably count on a hand uh, or two the number of episodes of the show where The Rock has not come up in one way or the other, and that's with good cause. I would pick Con Air over The Rock. I just want what Simon West. Oh, we should have this podcast. We need to do an Con entire Air podcast about awesome. Con Air versus Con Air is don't, awesome. Don't, don't let me. Don't let's like it, it, that's Simon West masterpiece, but. <laughs> it's we, yeah, I mean there's no can we do versus the rock, the rock and then do deep impact versus Armageddon and like do like I know we're gonna have a two hour live episode we're gonna have an entire deep impact versus Armageddon convention like around this conversation the DNA of those films is very different and, and one what? is going a little bit more for the DNA was, is almost exactly the same wait, they're like no, almost the same they're movie true. They're, they're really different they're very different. The deep impact is very much as a genuine pathos to it is uh, it's still it sort of haunts me how they do away with Maximilian Schell's character and all the people over a certain age and like a very uh, sober acceptance of death. What uh, about the, the, the sober is, acceptance uh, of death bomb, of bomb Dave bass. Chappelle, you know? In the well, Con now Air. you're talking about Con Air. I'm talking about Armageddon. <laughs> no, but, I'm uh, always talking about Con Air. Wait, I want to hear Patch's <laughs> answer for this supposedly oh, mini segment. Yeah, we're, we're wrapping this up. Uh, I'm going to pick Mission Impossible 1996, Good. the Brian De Palma movie. Um, which I've had to defend many a times, uh, most notably against Rob Hunter fighting, or uh, what's it called, Film School Rejects. Uh, and I've, I've written many a diatribe about Mission Impossible being excellent and kind of the exact scale of a summer blockbuster that I like. That I mean, there's no, aside from the ending with the helicopter and slight explosions, it's not a big bombastic summer blockbuster, but uh, it's high intensity. I feel like De Palma is using all the right tools uh, as opposed to something like Snake Eyes um, that kind of gets mangled in the style. Here it's like every every angle is right or every split diopter focus thing is, is crazy and intense. And I, I just feel the pressure of 
each mission. And of course, that famous scene where Tom Cruise goes down on the wire, toast, toast. I love, I just. And Emilio Estevez gets utterly destroyed. Everyone dying in the beginning. uh, Still, still a shock. Still a shock. I just, my blood pressure was racing throughout that entire movie when I was young, when I first saw it. And whenever I rewatch it, I I love that movie. I'm disappointed in all of us for not saying speed. Uh, I do love speed. I, you dun, know, I need dun, to rewatch dun, dun, speed dun, dun, and see dun. if it's as good. I mean, the speed, like the bus of portion of it, it was really good. The bus portion of it's really speed good. is fantastic. I saw it on TV a few months ago, and that I mean, that's just a great. movie. I don't know what happened to Jean Debont. He really fell off the map. You know, Jean Debont was supposed to make a Godzilla movie. In Jean Debont was supposed to be on this podcast. Tonight, he was going to be but, there. Uh, you know what? Maybe next week. Maybe we'll get him. <laughs> Polish John DeBond. We're thinking. I about can't you. promise John DeBond, but I can promise lots of love for John DeBond. We are getting some truly extraordinary live images here in the studio. Three tonight again, inspired by Godzilla, which uh, I I must admit I have on the brain. You're uh, I want to talk shit out of the review. I know. Uh, I, I think anyone anyone who follows me on Twitter or Letterboxd or pretty much any social media is uh, well aware of my feelings about Godzilla. But uh, I I am very curious about the role and value of characters, human characters in blockbuster movies uh, of Jurassic Park or the post-Jurassic Park era, although this conversation can certainly reach back to uh, touch on Jaws and and things like that. But um, uh, Godzilla is really interesting because, uh, as we'll talk about in the review, I would imagine it feels sort of like the the first... Actually, I don't even want to get into it. I mean, there are the big complaints about Godzilla that the characters... uh, The movie opens with the initial promise, so to speak, that the characters are going to be front and center and, and fully sort of dimensionalized um, at the uh, and sort of privileged over spectacle and, and mythology and everything else. Uh, and the movie, uh, for better or worse, I would argue, better and with great purpose, deviates away from that and they sort of fall into more recognizable archetypes and uh, Johnson, whatever that guy is, who's always terrible but sometimes winds up in really good movies, um, is is not a particularly compelling uh, leading man in the movie, even though they have some pretty impressive actors playing his parents, uh, Julia Pinoche and Brian Cranston. Uh, but anyway, I, I think it's really interesting, especially with a movie like Godzilla, and you guys will see this conversation play out in the next few weeks, I promise you, uh, looking at how much in a movie that is driven by giant special effects and city-leveling things, how much do people really need characters uh, to to uh, bring them through these spectacles is, you know, Jurassic Park is, the, you know, one of the reasons it's so beloved is because it, it really feels like it has it all. It, it uses, uh, you know, tremendously realized characters, which are all uh, memorably acted to sort of lead you through the, the roller coaster. Um, but is it in Speed or The Rock or any or Con Air or any of the things that we talked about 
uh, what is the value of character in these movies? Well, and, and I, can a movie, can you love one of these things without a memorable character? I don't know you? if you can. Well, I mean, actually, you are the perfect example here because I'm interested in you loving The Rock so much, and I think this is kind of the downfall of Michael Bay. His 90s movies had these broad characters, but they had characters. Or you maybe they had personalities. The Rock is the downfall of Michael Bay? No, 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 I'm not saying that. No, 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 wait, wait here. Uh, the Rock okay. is a great example of Michael Bay working with a script that has personalities. It has Nick Cage, at least, glowing as this character, as this leading man. Whereas the Transformers movies fall apart. Uh, Shia LaBeouf is not bringing that character to life, and the script's not bringing that character to life. And as the movies progressed, I mean, I do not like Revenge of the Fallen. Horrible, horrible monstrosity. And Dark of the Moon doesn't do much for me in the way of you know, artistry of, of the epic or, or the bombastic. I know that it serves you in that way. And I'm well, curious. you won't find me arguing in, in favor or, you know, defending the characters in Dark of the Moon. But no, it doesn't need the characters. That's what I'm saying, that you appreciate that movie without it having any worthwhile characters, yes. um, which I find fascinating because most of the time movies do not do that for me. And that's why I go to bat with Man of Steel because I I like the characters in that movie. I dig Superman and his his emo-ness throughout the first act or two of that movie until, you know, 9/11 starts happening around him. Um well, when I, you're talking okay, No, go, go. Well, when you're starting to talk about characters in blockbuster movies like Man of Steel or a lot of the ones that come out, you're talking about movies that are sold on these characters like the Avengers or like even the Fast and Furious franchise at this point or Star Trek. You've got characters that people are sold on and they want to see them recur again and again in something. So even if you've got something that is based on spectacle, these movies are being sold on character. And I think the best ones, the ones that are successful like Fast and Furious or Fast Five or the Avengers do a good job of making those characters central to what's going on so that you're not just kind of going to watch some cars crash into each other. You're going to watch Vin Diesel driving the car that's crashing into people. And I think mm. that, I mean, if you think if you're... But that's why those movies are horrible, because as time has progressed, the Fast and the Furious movies have lost that. No, I, no, I, don't, I think, I think, the, I think the character's is. non-existent the in the Fast, Fast and Furious movies. The Fast and Furious movies have gone, have turned into, like, getting the gang together movies. They've emphasized yeah. so much the characters. They've got these people standing around calling their family and bringing in... <laughs> no, it's it's not that... I'm not going to say that the characters are better developed, but the emphasis on the personality is even greater in the Wow, movies. I totally disagree. I think we're getting to a certain point in blockbusters where the casts are overstuffed versus... I mean, Fast and the Furious is not an Ocean's Eleven type situation where everyone has their own kind of personality... Oh. Edge and and everyone's bringing something to the table, and even it might be an all star cast, but they're they're all slow. Let's slow down way. for a second. I wanna I wanna first of all <laughs> semantics, but a hundred percent with Katie on the fact that the Fast and Furious movies are getting more character oriented rather than they're not. Less. They're getting more. They're bolstering the cast with names and and people no, no. and characters, I, any, but it's all in an any, effort. It's the same. Uh, thing. It's like Michael Bay casting the movie. It's Fast bombast the in the way of talent. And I question your loyalty. To that furious <laughs> right now would be able to tell you that the one the reason that the character that I the franchise the furious, has so uh, the truth comes out. I mean, the sixth one was not as great as the fifth one, but the uh, or really good at all. But the reason that the uh, 
that franchise had rebounded so well with, with Tokyo Drift, and then the fourth one sort of flopped a little bit, but then the fifth one, is the fifth one, everyone really owned their, their role. You felt the real uh, chemistry between all the characters. Each of them, you know, got their own coda and send-off, which was very telling, and then the sixth one really arrived, uh, for better or worse, with this full, uh, fully embracing all the various roles. But I think what's interesting about what Katie said is that, you know, I am the last person to stick up for the Marvel movies, but this whole superhero thing is definitely ushered in or maybe, you know, sort of underscored how character-driven blockbuster culture often needs to be. But what's interesting about Transformers Dark of the Moon patches is your reference and also Godzilla is the reference, you know, the film which we started this conversation is that those are, you know, two films, two blockbuster movies that I liked that don't have especially memorable characters. And I think one of the reasons that I like each of them so much is explicitly because of that, because of the fact that their lack of character is so inextricably linked to what I love about them. There are thematic things at work in Godzilla that make me appreciate that uh, that development so much and that we'll talk about in the review. And with Transformers Dark of the Moon, as people who listen to our, our review show on uh, Apkino might remember, that I love so much about that movie that it, it completely divorced itself from any sort of narrative coherence, that it became almost like a Stan Brakhage movie by its you know, phenomenal final hour and, and the way the plot developed until that point. And so it would have been uh, that that feeling for me, the pleasure that I got out of it on that front would have been completely stifled by worthwhile characters. Um, but, you know, I think that there are a lot of summer blockbusters like like The Rock, exactly as you said, that I uh, that have incredibly memorable characters, of course, you know, Stanley Goodspeed and uh, whatever, what's Sean Connery's name? I, nine days out of ten, I would be able to pull it off the top of my head, but I'm old now. Um, and, like uh, um, you know, I mean, I think, so I think that, I don't know, it's hard to make sweeping generalizations, but I think that the, uh, I think it's, it's certainly possible. I think what I would maybe want to talk about this on the show is that I have a reflexive reaction to the idea that a blockbuster has to have strong characters in order to be successful. It has sure. to be relatable in order to to be a successful piece of entertainment that I, I take umbrage with um, because I think, you know, those are two exp- explicit examples, but I think that there are uh, a number of them where these films can work, where the film itself becomes a character. I but mean, isn't that what the disaster the, movie is almost by definition? Yeah. Like somehow yeah. the spectacle it's, it's we're watching the impact, the relationship dynamic is between the world and the ensemble. I mean, Twister seems to function in a way. Going back to our good friend Jean de Bond, couldn't make it tonight. Um, but uh, I mean, that movie is about tornadoes and watching Bill Paxton run away from tornadoes um, and and the crew. Who need? I mean, it doesn't really. I don't remember what any of those people in that movie what their deal well, is uh, besides that they chase sight. tornadoes. Dare I cite? I mean, I've it's gotten to the point of parody where I've been mocked by some of our listeners for how frequently I bring up this movie. But uh, uh, Mission Impossible Three to go back to our Mission Impossible, uh, you know, your shout out. I can't wait to counter this because this is a a poor example. This is exactly this is the wishy washiness that destroys summer. Well, what I'm saying is that the um, that movie, other than Philip Seymour Hoffman's, you know, franchise best, unimpeachably the best villain. Those, those films. For a second, I thought we were talking about Twister still. No, no. Although, you know, the connection is there. Um, uh, you know, he's really the only memorable character in that movie, and Tom Cruise is really just a plot propulsion machine 
but the uh, the movie uh, it just goes, and I think it's it's speed, it's sort of ever uh, you know the Energizer Bunny effect, uh, and it's it's momentum is really its defining characteristic. It doesn't really need more character beyond it's what so is funny. supplied. That's so. That's, that's like the exact opposite of my feelings on Mission Impossible Three, where I, I totally am on board with your idea that you don't need characters for a successful blockbuster. It can be about the spectacle in some ways and the relationship to the people involved, the pawns in some cases. But for me, Mission Impossible Three is trying to like straddle a line in an unsuccessful way. It can't be character driven enough, as opposed to say Mission Impossible One, which I really think is about mm-hmm. Ethan Hunt Maybe that's and the his. Yeah, perhaps. But um, I think Mission Impossible uh, I have Three to re-watch Mission Impossible One straddles a line. It, it really fails. And, and one of the examples I keep thinking of in terms of here's a great character movie with set pieces that play to the characters and why it needs strong personalities is the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, mm-hmm. uh, Curse of the Black Pearl. I mean, well, it has one strong person. Well, it's not just Jack Sparrow. I mean, he's a keystone, but I do think Jeffrey like Rush. Will and Jeffrey Rush. Uh, will will I, being I will Orlando not, Bloom, I, will, I think I will is not hear Orlando Bloom's character. Being called a yeah. character in that movie. I mean, he is yeah, a swashbuckling I'm... archetype, and so is Kira Knightley being this kind of badass damsel in distress. But I mean, these are strong enough performers and strong enough character archetypes that they're they're being. It's it's not a big action movie. It's small scale sword fights, and it relies on dueling personalities as much as it does action choreography. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know that it's charisma even more than character. I would say because I think that well, that's why uh, The Rock works so well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's true, and and I think that it can be a fine line between the two. But I don't, I don't really know if uh, Captain Jack Sparrow, as I think three subsequent films proved, is much of a character. He's really more of a well, certain three, no three force. additional movies don't prove it because they became bombastic spectacles they became over they became bloated i mean they went bigger and bigger and bigger and they are trying to sense. tell me that pirates of the caribbean the world's end is bloated <laughs> i believe <laughs> it's at of- world's end whatever um but yeah that's that's the franchise losing a sense of itself i mean i can't you, you really think that the subsequent sequels detract from the original film? I certainly don't. I think Black Pearl is kind of like up there. No, I with don't the, think it With the classic Indiana Jones movies. Oh, I, that <laughs> might be a little too far from me. But I don't think it detracts from that film, but I do think that it exposes how much that character there really was. And I, you know, I think that you could have this conversation for days that wouldn't necessarily get anywhere and saying like, well, is Indiana Jones a character or is he just this sort of charismatic force and how different is that from from Johnny Depp or are they really sort of enlivened by the circumstances into which they're they're placed and Indiana Jones' circumstances are a lot uh, more expressive than the ones that they eventually found to stuck to sick uh, Captain Jack Sparrow in. But uh, yeah, Patches, you had a question? Yes. Just to wrap up here, I'm curious if you guys think are, are there memorable characters from the past few years of summer blockbusters that come to mind? You know, we talk about movies getting away with not having them, but are there movies that are striving to have them that successfully have them? I'm new trying to think. or Not necessarily new characters, but ones I mean, that thinking... are vibrant enough that we feel like this movie is resting on the shoulders of does, a character. Does The Great Gatsby count? <laughs> Barely. No, no, it does not. Gonna, That's not the say, kind uh, of movie you're talking about. I was going to say, 
I know. Uh, my pick would be Iron Man, which is a nah. second tier superhero character not a lot of people carried not a lot of people cared about until that performance came out and made the movie way more I mean the first Iron Man is really not that good as a movie but it rests on the shoulders of this performance and this so character. that's that's the interesting thing we're, we're coming up with here do you think Indiana Jones is just a Harrison Ford character is he great because of Harrison Ford and do you think that Robert Downey Jr. I mean is is Tony Stark a great character because it's a great excuse for Downey Jr. to go crazy with his charisma. I mean, I don't know if we're seeing great... I don't think it's great, useful to separate them. I don't know if we see great characters in summer movies, but we see performers who have, you know, the the springboard to do something wild, to do something heightened because of this action. I don't know if we have great summer characters in the last decade. Food for thought. You know who's a really interesting example for this? It wasn't a uh, it wasn't a summer film. Uh, simply, you know, this is a game of release dates and, and business. I don't think it's anything substantial. Um, is uh, James Bond? Is Daniel Craig's James Bond? Because hmm. obviously that character is uh, is James Bond, but um, he was very explicitly reborn uh, with the Daniel Craig films, and they sort of bring him back to his origins and, and start from scratch. Uh, and that is a you know. It, it, Again, you could have this argument until you're blue in the face as to whether or not it, it is a it is the same breed of blockbusters we've been talking about with these summer films. Um, James Bond has a sort of a few I different. I think James Bond it, is in but, that category. I think you're. Yeah, but it, uh, that, that's been a really interesting test to see. I mean, really, it's an interesting sort of uh, barometer to look at how a character drives all of these different spectacles and, and how it's tweaking that character or making him more of a character or more of a sort of just this energy force um, well, I always, what it does to the action around it. I'm fascinated when something that I would call understated ends up being able to kind of thrust a block for, blockbuster forward. I think Matt Damon did that in the Bourne movies. I mean, mm-hmm. what is he? He's not like going wild in the way that Robert Downey Jr. might in Iron Man. He's really kind of floating through this world and wrestling with whatever's on Bourne's plate throughout each film. Um, he he might be enough of a character, but then again, he's very plot-driven, I, and I haven't watched and then, well, that's a, a film about. That's actually a really interesting example, because that's a film about him trying to figure out what character he is. Right. I mean, it's about it's about like getting to the the very root of his character um, and seeing how relevant that is. And I think uh, one of the reasons that I like the Bourne Ultimatum much more than I do the other two films is because even though it's sort of building to this climax, and you ultimately get a little bit of an essay, you learn that his name is David. You know, how can you not like that? Is uh, you know the sort of thing where it's. Um, it really did. It was the first one where I was like, okay, all this is irrelevant. It's really um, just about moving him around and him trying to locate his character. And that is enough of a character for him to have. Uh, anyway, this is an interesting I, discussion. Patches, I don't know if I have we, one Katie, final, did you have? Yeah, I was going to have one final suggestion for Patches before we leave Borat. Hmm. But that's not, that's not a spectacle. I mean, I guess it came out in the summer. But it may not be the, the no. summer movie as we define it. That is just a character. And yet the comedies seem to be doing better and better. So maybe maybe that's where we have to go. We have to sacrifice character in the action movies, and it's really just a comedy or a Great Gatsby game. <laughs> <laughs> comedies or Great Gatsby, that's all you get. I can't wait for the Great Gatsby reboot yeah. in a few years. <laughs> Gats.
That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday with a review. Did you guess it? Did you guess what we're reviewing? It's Godzilla. I bet you did. Ah! <laughs> Everyone okay, you guys sound like on. angry birds. Cuckoo! <laughs> <laughs> Everyone will bring their cats on. We're gonna guests. we're gonna do at the end of that episode. We're all gonna do our Godzillas, and you guys will have to vote to do has awesome. I'm going to prepare Godzilla. <laughs> I'm going method practice. for this. <laughs> There's gonna be like a Rocky montage. <laughs> I'm going to live underwater for the next few awesome. days to prepare. So we'll be back on Friday with that. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. Yes, I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet, and I try and put everything on mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And I'll take Dave's tidbit thingy here. Um, we have both a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can comment and tweet and Facebook share and all that and interact with this episode, and we love to read your comments there. But also, if you have thoughts or opinions or questions, or if you want to participate in the show, uh, you can call us, 914-410-6450. We love getting voicemails. Um, we love hearing your voice, and we love including you in the show. So leave us a message. I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me writing around here and there, uh, mostly on Dissolve and the AV Club. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And you can find all of us together talking to you in solidarity like a game of Dark Souls, except for we can actually talk to you. Uh, on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. And I am Katie Rich. I got married and I'm back. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. You can also find the entire podcast at F-I-T-W-R on Twitter where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which is... <laughs> oh, damn it. That was supposed to be me. Who does that? Yeah, I think I think you just called... You cued yourself. I cued myself. The white narrow question is, which TV star deserves to be a movie star next in the vein of John Hammond Million Dollar Arm? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. Friday.